And I believe, again, you go back to if the Holy Spirit is alive and in us, and if the word of God is alive and active, like, do we believe this? Why do we choose to believe the word of God about salvation, but we just won't believe it on freedom in areas of whether it's sexual sin or other addictive behavior? Well, get ready for a really great show. I have someone with me that I'm excited about. Fair warning, this show is going to be about sex. So I just said the word. Yes, I did. I have Dr. Lena Abujamra with me today, pediatric ER doctor, Bible teacher, Christian speaker, and founder of Living with Power Ministries, which provides medical care and humanitarian help to Syrian refugees and others in disaster areas. Welcome to Joe. Well, thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. <laughs> She's told me that I can call her Lena. So that's how I will address Dr. Lena today. How does a pediatric ER doctor become a Bible teacher? How does that connect happen? By some fluke accident, probably. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I was in my fellowship when I started teaching a Sunday school class for women. And it was in a season of my life that was very, I went through my first big faith existential crisis leading up to that. So sort of had some, all my life, I was one of those people that I got saved at a young age, sort of was the obedient child. I really didn't cause any problems and, you know, had a strong will, but was obedient to God and wanted to do his will. And so went to camp, sort of dedicated my life to the Lord, started college and ended up doing medicine. My dad was a doctor and, and things started to fall apart in my residency. I had not dated in my life up until that point. I'm Lebanese. We grew up in Lebanon, but also, you know, grew up in a Baptist church sort of, so, you know, double whammy, you know, plus, you know, my dad's a doctor. He's like, you're going to date after you finish, you know, become a doctor, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Very, uh, very, very Lebanese in mentality. And so it wasn't, a, you know, dating wasn't a big thing in our home. But when I went to residency, I think by then they were like, okay, like it's okay to date now. And so I, I meet a guy, get engaged literally within a few months of meeting him first, you know, serious relationship. So you can already predict how this is going to go two weeks before the wedding ended the engagement. Mm. And, but the sort of clincher there was that there was another guy who had been my best friend since college. So eight, 10 years, I think by that point, we were best friends. And I really thought God would work that relationship out. So that was always sort of, you know, sort of the elephant in the room. And so long story short, I went to my fellowship after understanding that this person had moved on. So now I had broken this engagement. Now this guy has moved on. And it was one of those situations, you know, where you circle the verse and you really feel like God had spoken about this thing in your life. And you wait and you wait and, wait, and you get to the point where literally you're like, you, you still think because you're so so convinced of what God has said that you still think like before the wedding of his, his wedding, he got, he ended up dating someone else and was engaged. And I thought, surely he's going to wake up and, and figure out God's will because <laughs> God, I felt like God had spoken so clearly to me and he never did. He got married. And so by that point I was really devastated and felt like, how could God be trusted when, you know, I've done my part, you know, I hadn't dated, I hadn't had any kind of, you know, sexual relationship with a guy, you know what I mean? Like I was trying to be a godly person and, and had given my life to the Lord. And so in that mess, I ended up starting my fellowship at pediatric ER. And, and it was miraculous even that I had a position that year, you know, I was late in the application and everything was just, everything was a mess. And I showed up to Jacksonville, Florida, and I was glad to have gotten the position, but I was really down about everything. You know, the only salvation at that point was I lived a mile from the beach. And so that whole year, I think the first year of my fellowship, I literally would like go to the ER and act like everything was fine and then come home and just really have it out with God. Mm. And it was hard. It was the first time I really felt like 
I was wrestling for my faith. And out of that, the Lord used his word, the minor prophets really at one point, and, and actually some people from the church that I had visited. And there's just a lot of little things that God did to sort of heal my heart in that season. And I started going to that church, which I was already going, but I started really going to that the elderly woman's Sunday school class. And eventually she went back to lead a church with her husband, like her husband's a pastor. And so they were well into their retirement, but were called to do an interim pastor thing. And so they asked me to teach the Bible. Mm. And I, you know, I grew up in a, with, with a you know, God-fearing, Bible-studying mother. So Bible study was part of our family's DNA and language. And so, but I'd never taught in that capacity. I, I am a Bible teacher, but I'm probably more an, a prophetic. I sound more like a charismatic preacher than I do, a, you know, an independent fundamentalist Bible teacher of the 80s, which is where I grew up in. And so that was the first time though I stood up in front of class and was able to really expose scripture. And I think that was what I fell in love with. And I, you know, begged God to let me do this. And at one point I felt like God was calling me to do that. And he was opening different doors and, and, and thus started the journey. Yeah, I love it. And what I love about it too, is that well, sometimes we get into these things very, and traditionally, it's not like yep. you went to seminary and you said, oh, I'm going to be a Bible teacher. You were in this other... I was Bible taught. I mean, I was one of the products of three times a week. But, you know, grew up going to church multiple times a week. I went to a Christian college where we had a mandatory Bible class every semester. So, you know, spent my summers at a Christian camp. So I was well-versed in scripture, you know, already sure. by nature. And I was into, you know, I was doing my quiet time. Like I, I, I had a grasp of scripture, but I, I'll tell you, when I started teaching the Bible, I, I was always so afraid. My mom had a very good grasp of the word growing up. Up, but she taught Sunday school classes and sort of watched her be very comfortable with knowing where things were in scripture. That was pre-Google, pre-handheld you know, handheld devices. And even email was relatively, I mean, it was a few years old, but relatively new. And, and I remember being so afraid, like, I'm not going to know what to say. And, and sort of that verse that Kay Arthur has referred to multiple precept upon precept is built on that verse in Isaiah. That, and my mom had, had early on said, you know, hey, just trust God. He'll give you little by little, precept by precept. And it became sort of my rule of thumb of like, you just do little by little. And over the course of the year, sort of like with medicine, you just take it one step at a time. And and now it's funny because people will be like, well, you're so you know comfortable with the word. They're, you know, quote unquote, impressed by how you know the word. But I think about not that long ago, you know, granted 23 years ago now, but just seeing the growth that God has done just by faithfully showing up to his word and understanding it and listening to sermons and processing it. And, and genuinely, it's my giftedness, like my love of the word is so that that's what God has wired me to do. But, you know, I've continued. I mean, obviously, I still practice medicine. So I've led a bivocational life and it's been, you know, it's been great, but it's also had its challenges because I think sometimes sort of knowing how you fit in, where you fit in. And and so having the, you know, living with power in the ministry has been sort of a way to sort of, you know, try to get some identity, I guess, in a sense, in the Christian world, as opposed to just being like a random doctor who teaches the Bible. And God's been faithful, opened up some opportunities to write and to uh, continue to teach. So it's been, yeah, it's been crazy. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's get into this because as you say about your very own book, don't tell anyone you're reading this. That's the name of the book, right. A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. We're going to sit down and have a long talk about sex. That's what you're saying. First of all, are you are you a a blunt person and talking about sex just comes really easy and natural to you unlike the rest of us? Is Yes, I'm an ER doctor, so I am very comfortable talking about body parts. <laughs> so yeah, there's no question that I was destined to write this book because there is uh, innate comfort over the years in dealing with the human body and understanding it and touching it and talking about it in a way that I don't think lay people, general people, people who aren't in medicine are comfortable with. But nurses, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, 
the healthcare professionals are. Yeah. And so, yes, it's, I tend to be blunt. And I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, even in, in this book coming out and coming on radio, I think people are so afraid of the words. And, and I'm, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm also a doctor who can manage a conversation by talking about things without talking about things and being blunt about it. <laughs> I don't think there's value in just being blunt for the sake of being blunt. Yeah. But I think you have to be direct in conveying a message, yeah. which is what I aim to do in this book. Yeah, well, and let's just be honest, kids are very blunt in the way that they communicate. And they also, they want real and honest. And, you know, we're we're kind of past the age where, past the stage of life and seasons of of life in, in, in our culture, where we can afford to not talk about things and not talk about them pretty pointedly. Well, you're quick to point out that this is actually not a book about sex. It is a book about the struggle with our desires and why so many committed followers of Jesus are failing in our sexual lives and how to change that. So I want to talk about this change word because I was thinking about this and the struggle with sexual sin and someone who has maybe struggled with porn for a long time and they're listening. They want to believe that they can change, but they might come at this a little bit skeptically because they're they're thinking I have tried to change. I have I have, you know, done what I know to do. Tell me why you're hopeful about that how to change it part that you're saying is possible with even in reading well, this think, book. I think at the end of the day, if you're a follower of Jesus, your hope is rests and is built around the truth of the resurrection. Yeah. I mean, a Jesus who can raise from him from the dead, a God who raises from the dead. I mean, and watching the ministry of Jesus and the things that he did, I, I don't think you can genuinely be a follower of Jesus and not have some hope. Uh, but I think you have to fight for hope. Yes. And I think as you so so this book is a little bit different than other books about about sex in the sense that I really tell my story in it. It's more of a story. It's an easier read than I mean a lot of people have have verified that they couldn't put it down. They read it in a night, you know, which is uh, honestly it's 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 touching. That was sort of I felt like when I finished it that that I was I'm not surprised because it's really like it, it just tells. I think it's easy to give people a list of do's and don'ts. I think generally my generation sort of knows the do's and don'ts, but I recently spoke at a college, a room full of, you know, 20 to 22 year olds. And afterwards, some of the questions that came to me, I don't think it's, we can say blanket, you know, a blanket statement of, well, we know what the do's and don'ts are. I, I think we should know. I mean, anyone who reads the Bible should know, but I think anyone who's under 25, I think might not know yeah, what the Bible says about sure. premarital sex, about pornography, about even same-sex attraction. I mean, so many churches now, I mean, I, you know, are, are breaking up over, like the, the camps are being divided yeah. of people who are you affirming, are you, you know, and, and yet the Bible is so clear in terms of, of its teaching, at least, you know, if you read it and just what, what, whether you agree with it or not is another matter. Now the question is, is, is it clear? So I didn't feel like we needed a book to necessarily to explain, because there are a lot of books are on that and what the Bible says about it. I tried to explore why we do what we do, because I think when you understand, so for the person who, yes, like you're saying, who may be stuck in, in, in a sin like porn, which I think in, in 2023, the challenge is that it's harder to overcome sin that lives in your home. 
Yeah. And it lives in your home because you have a phone. Sure. And I, I don't want to blame everything on the phone, but but that's a reality that we didn't have 30 years ago when people had to actually go places to get the magazines, to watch the adult videos. I, I think that's partly why women struggle with porn now more than they did before. Yeah. Because access and it's it's anonymous and but but all sorts of you know sexual practices that, you know, I mean, I think I think, you know, same-sex attraction, I think right now in the church, like how does a person who is same-sex attracted live the call of what the Apostle Paul and, and God's word from Genesis to Revelation teaches about how we're supposed to be sexually. And I define that in the book pretty early in that I believe that the Bible holds to two basic things, which is faithfulness and marriage between one man and one woman and chastity and singleness. And so whether the bend, you know, whatever your sin bend is, and, and why I say this book isn't just about sex, because, because all of us have a bend towards sin. Whatever. Some people, it's an overeating and indulging in that. And I think you can think about sin in terms of like lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life. When it comes to lust of the flesh, everyone has some level of that. Now, some people might be higher on the sex, you know, sins as opposed to whatever else. Like you can make a list versus the, you know, the lust of the eyes, materialism. I mean, it's huge. And so wherever you feed your, when you're in pain, where do you turn to, to feed that pain? And so the more you understand why you do what you do, I think the more you're able to identify sort of that need in your life, that ache. I like to call it the ache. I think we all have an ache. And when we get in a place where we ache, we turn to something. And so I think it is challenging when someone who, and I, I talk about that a lot in the book, which someone who struggles with a besetting sin, the sin that keeps coming up in your life, place that you learn to find comfort or escapism and, and, and you don't get found out for a while. And I think the challenge is how does the gospel speak to that? Is the gospel true? Can God change people? And I equivocally think, yes. I think if we didn't believe that, then I don't understand why we would believe anything that Jesus did. I mean, this is the essence of what it means to be saved. And so now the challenge is how? And, and how do we define change? And I talk about this in the book again, because I think we want to be very binary about change in the Christian world. One day we're are struggling, the next day we have no struggle. And we think that's victory. And I think it's more nuanced than that. I think for some of us, we will always have a bend towards a sin and we'll have to fight it daily. And, and so what does it look like to be changing? We want the changed. We want, I want to be what I am going to be in heaven. I don't struggle with this. I'm overcoming this. I never binge on whatever, eat food or drugs or alcohol. or. And I, I just think it's God's grace ministers to us daily. Mm -hmm. Yes, there may be failures along the way, but again, what type of failures? And then you also have to, I think this is where it becomes tricky. I think some sins are, again, where it's hidden. I mean, this is what we're watching. Like right now, this week, there was a, a man who was busted in the social media, whether the story is true or not, who's a very big name Christian leader. And you kind of go, oh my gosh, another one. And you go, how does it get to that? And so I think this is really the, the tipping point for me was, and now I watch these, these implosions of sexual leaders and I kind of go, wow, how do we prevent that? Well, we do it by admitting what we struggle with, and speaking about it bluntly, like you just mentioned. We don't have the luxury anymore to speak in code, where we show up to small group, we've all done that, and you're like, pray for me, I'm struggling with lust. You know, the 22-year-old who says, of course, it's a 22-year-old guy who doesn't struggle with lust, something is wrong with that. Like, but that's so vague. Yeah. What does that mean? Where are you struggling with lust, and why are you? And what, what can be done about that? Those are the questions that I think are much more important for us in this era. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hi friend, jumping in here for a minute to tell you about my book, I Want God, a book that in every way changed my life. What God did in me when out of desperation and deep longing for more in my life, 
is chronicled in these pages. It truly brought revival to my soul. I share those things that brought me to that place of revival, those revival killers that get in our way, and how wanting God versus knowing we need God is really the game changer. If you feel desperate in your life, desperate for more of God, or you just really want to want God in this moment because you know you need Him, I Want God is for you. Get a copy now wherever books are sold. I am praying that through the words you read on the pages, your life will never be the same. One of the things, as you just mentioned, that you address in the book is something that I'm really passionate about as well, and that is talking about ministry leaders falling, because it's just not only such a problem, but it's such a wound. It's It becomes yep. such a place of difficulty for then people that are watching from the outside who are not believers, people that are inside that are experiencing it, whether in that particular congregation or just believers in general, it just continues to pile on wound after wound. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, especially when it's related to something sexually, it it feels, especially for women, really tender and brings back feelings and all of those things. What do you think is at the root of this? When leaders fall, people, I think, always go back to the lack of accountability issue. They say, well, there, there wasn't enough accountability with this. Is it too much power? Is it lust? What makes a leader risk losing his entire family or church and give in to these sexual temptations? It's a complicated answer. I think, broadly speaking, is it sin, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's sin. So what makes a person think they can get away with sin versus not? And, And I do think in that sense, it's this sense of narcissism and the sense of power that they can hide things and I'm not going to get busted. So I think there's no question that pride plays a big part in that. Yeah. I want to say, I think it's like any sin that you hide. Interestingly, how I shape the book is every chapter, I sort of go over one reason why we do what we do. And, I, and so I think it might vary for people. I think one other thing that comes up a lot in ministry leaders, I think they need escapism. You know, I think a lot of yeah. people think, oh, if I could just become a celebrity person or best-selling book or speak to whatever thousands of people. I mean, it's a constant you know, battle for people who do the things like, like you and I do. The Christian institution, the evangelical complex sort of drives that. Like you don't get book deals if you don't have a platform. And so there's this constant pressure to perform. And you think, well, if I just reach that, then everything will be fine. But it's never fine. I mean, I just finished Matthew Perry's biography and he's been in the news course. He just died, but but had a huge history of addiction. And 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 you kind of go like, like he says, and I think this is like, we think that if we sell so many books or lead a church of this many people, we'll be satisfied. And here's Matthew Perry, who's like richest, good looking, everything going for him. And he says, man, I became famous and I it didn't fill the ache, right? that ache. And I think there are a lot of pastors out there who have a deep ache. And I think they just, whether they feel they deserve a bit of a break and maybe it starts small, maybe it doesn't start with a physical relationship. Maybe it starts with porn maybe because the statistics of porn with pastors is huge already. Like in the church, like we know the numbers are high. And so we're naive if we think this isn't a problem in the church. And because of their jobs, their livelihoods, they don't have the luxury of coming clean because if they come clean, they lose their jobs or get put on sabbatical, whatever. And so it becomes like something where you you don't have the, you can't afford to come clean mm-hmm. until you get caught. And, and getting caught ends up being the greatest mercy of God if you're a follower of God, because at some point 
that might be the only thing that gets you to change is if you True. get caught. And so while we hate the idea that someone got caught, it's the best thing that could happen to that person. And so funny because even, so I, in a way, like I've always felt like when I, when the Lord put on my heart to write on this topic, I, of course, up until that moment, I would have been like horrified. Like I'd never tell my story. Like, well, why would you, why would you tell someone about this? Like it's hidden sin, you know, hidden stuff. And, and it, I wasn't, when you read my story, you'll see like there were not other people involved. You know what I mean? So why would you do that? And But I knew the moment God put that on my heart that who else would do it? I had the luxury of, I'm not leading a church. I have a nonprofit and we we help people and, and I have a full-time job as a physician and I love the Lord and I want to be open. And I think, who do we expect would do this? Who would sit down and write these things? And yet if we don't tell our stories, how does the person in the congregation who's wrestling understand that? We're not talking theory. The pastor isn't just preaching from up top going, here's what you need to do. Here's what you don't do. They're going home and having to battle the same things we do. And even after the book has come out, I've, I've noticed a reticence of like, people are afraid of this topic. Honestly, when I but when I was writing the book, as it came to a close and I saw the power of the story and people who have left reviews on Amazon, people who have read it and, and emailed me, it is a powerful book. And it's fascinating to me because I see the Christian evangelical complex a little bit arm's length. They're afraid of the content. Mm-hmm. They don't understand why you have to be so direct. And I think you already hinted at that earlier. The world is direct. Your kids are hearing direct messages. The age, the average age of kids being exposed to porn is 11. Yeah. They're hearing direct messages. They're also sexually active. So let's, let's, we can pretend if we want. Also, I think, and I think this is important for the, for the Christians to hear too, in that not just sexually active, but I think the same-sex attraction in the church in 2023 is a whole nother thing where oh yeah the numbers of of people who identify as same-sex attracted in the church or bisexual is huge yes and besides whether your church has taken an affirming or non-affirming stance your kids are struggling with these things yeah and also even if they are uh, curious or they are yes. uh, being influenced at school. There are people all around, kids all around them that are having the conversations about it. They're being inundated with, you know, folks that are very, very influential on their brains. And so you as a parent, if you're listening, you need to be aware of these things. And it doesn't go away because we just don't talk about it. It it, it is a problem that you're not you're not helping because you're not equipped, because you're not wanting to hear about it. And so instead your kids are still being exposed to it. You're just less equipped to talk to them about it. And so that's not what we want. We want families who are sitting around the dinner table. And after maybe we've had our meal, we're talking very openly and honestly, obviously being honest with ourselves about these things. You know, I'm not outing anything you didn't yourself say in this book. As you said, you're very, very honest. You say that you're a 50 year old virgin. So how scary was it to write to people with maybe a lot of sexual experience that you don't yourself have even young millennials, like you're speaking to these folks that you know are up against a lot of things and they're, they're experiencing a lot of things. We're not that different. That's the thing is I think it's, again, we're all really good at grading sin and, you know, and we're all really good at thinking, whoa, I'm a lot better than they are or whatever. I think we're not that different. It's a matter of opportunity. Yeah. I happen to grow up in a home where my parents 
emphasized us being medicine, couldn't date until finish in graduation. And we were a little bit more hands, like, you know, we, and we moved from Lebanon my senior year of high school. So there's a lot of dynamics that made it, I didn't grow up in a typical American home. And so I didn't have opportunity. Yeah. And then, you know, then you fall into this Bible teaching thing. And then I have a mom and a sister who are in my face all the time. Like there's been some protective things. And I think the Lord and his goodness also has afforded me that protection. Yeah. But that doesn't make me different from the average person who might have a ton of sexual partners. Yeah. And so I think that's an important thing why I think I could write about this. And of course, I think I've been exposed to a huge amount of story of people who have had issues with whether in ministry or in medicine, I have heard it all. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so in, with that in mind, I think, again, I, and even what you're saying leading up to this, like I'm thinking about even like, like stepping back from it all. Like, you know, you, we're, we're teaching the Bible, we're ministering to people and, and, and we're, what we're advocating is the Bible saying there's certain things within sexuality and morality. The Bible says you're not to live this way. Right. And so we can make a list. And the more time has passed in culture, and maybe this was true in Roman days, because we know like, you know, back in Roman days, the sexual perversion was crazy. But I don't think in the last 100 years, I, I honestly, I don't think sexual perversion has been to the degree that it is now where it's now very acceptable. Mm-hmm. And so maybe back then, but but certainly now, yeah, certainly in the last 100 years. And again, we go back to how close it is to home now. Yeah. And I think when we're bringing up kids and saying, all right, well, you know, like now we're living in a culture where the, devi- the deviation between what culture believes and what Christ- what the Bible teaches are so far apart. Like as an example, you talk about like virginity. When somebody being a virgin at 50, I initially had a subtitle for the book that was like a sexual memoir of a 50 year old virgin. And, and like why I changed the title and the subtitle is I most 18 to 22 year olds didn't want to have anything to do with someone who says they're a 50 year old virgin. Right. It's embarrassing enough for them to admit they're an 18 year old virgin. Right. They can't relate. It's like the worst bane of their existence. Like who right. wants to even live that? And yet that's what God's word teaches if you don't get married. Right. And it's not an example. Christians, you know, we're all like celebrate recovery, porn, overcome porn, put cards on your phone. Everyone that I know who's not a follower of Jesus, man, they, they watch porn together as a couple. Yeah, that's true. Think about that. Masturbation. The yeah. Academy of Pediatrics says it is completely healthy. Yeah. They, they teach you in residency. You tell your kids, go to your room and do this in private. Now I get that. Again, I taught, there's a chapter on this topic because I think it's very important because it's the root of a lot of, of sin. But in that chapter, I, I don't know that the Bible clearly says the act is wrong, but what is associated with it is often wrong. And I think the world would think I'm crazy with my stance on it. Yeah. Now we're sending kids to schools, whether college, okay, maybe you don't go to public high school, but even at a Christian schools or, or public high schools, whatever, you know, then colleges, then the world. And you're having these conversations with people like, like how then, how do we live like this? How is it possible? Are we ridiculously, you know, naive as Christians? And I believe, again, you go back to if the Holy Spirit is alive and in us. And if the word of God is alive and active, like, do we believe this? Why do we choose to believe the word of God about salvation, but we just won't believe it on freedom in areas of whether it's sexual sin or other addictive behavior? And I actually think God is able to change us, even if it's a battle every day until we see him someday. Yeah. So let's talk about shame. How Mm -hmm. can shame actually work against getting victory over sexual struggle? And, And what can we do about that? It keeps you shame. Shame keeps you hiding. For interestingly, one, you know, right after the fall. I mean, when you think about the the sin of Adam and Eve, everything is rooted back to that. At the end of the day, yeah. Adam and Eve's sin was that it wasn't that they ate the fruit. It was that they didn't believe God's word. 
mm-hmm. right after. That's a big sin, disbelief. All sin is rooted in disbelief. At the end of the day, I don't care if it's gossip, slander, lying, stealing, coveting. It's all rooted in you don't believe God. You don't believe that what God has given you is what he wants for you. You don't believe that he can't change you. Whatever it is, it's all rooted in belief, belief in the goodness of God, belief in the ability of God. Now, what was the first thing they did? They hid after they fell. So disbelief, the very next thing, they sin, they hide. Why? Because they were ashamed. So right in the first few verses of Genesis 3 in this Bible, you see like this shame is like, it's like a huge theme. And so we, you know, shame, you know, it's funny because a lot of people have written about porn as an example. Like, and, and I think that can apply to any sexual sin. We think, we kind of want to think, well, my shame is because I'm having sex with my boyfriend and we're not married, or my shame comes from I'm having an affair, or my shame comes from I'm watching porn, or I'm over masturbating, whatever it is. Shame is what often leads to that behavior. Yeah. That's the interesting thing. It's yeah. not that you're, yeah, the behavior gives you shame, but it's shame yeah. that leads you to that. I think I, I've been blessed to be able to be in therapy for several years since I had a season of deconstruction because of hurt, church hurt. My book that led to this was on church hurt. Not an accident that I wrote on this topic after church hurt. And you brought that up earlier, Lisa, because there is something that happens when you're so wounded by leaders who fall. My situation was more about abuse of power than specifically sexual sin, but there's always noise about sexual issues in the background. But in that season, I started going to a therapist and it's been really a gift. And and I think, you know, in that capacity, I've been able to unpack a lot of those reasons of, you know, why we do what we do. And anyway, all this to say shame Shame has been a big theme in my path towards freedom. Here's what I've noticed about our culture and shame. And I think this is an important sort of point. When I first started putting words on social media about the book coming out, several people commented that, well, the only reason you feel ashamed, you meaning Christians, was it was is because you guys put God, you you have this restrictive God. It's because of what you teach. You don't need to be ashamed. You can do whatever you want. Shame yeah. is self-inflicted. And so this is a big trap now in our culture. And by the way, I've watched people who have written on these topics who mean like, you know, I, I, some, I, mean, I don't want to name specific names, but people who maybe have been Christians in the past who now don't hold yeah. to an orthodox biblical worldview, but specifically women who have written on shame. And, and yeah. they bravado, they take this immense sort of pride in proclaiming we are no longer ashamed. Yes. We can do anything and we are not ashamed. So rather than allowing shame to do what it's supposed to do, which is lead us to God. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the garden, God comes to Eve and, and Adam and he says, where are you guys? And they're still hiding. They're hiding fi- with a thing over them, you know, their genitals, because they're, but they're also hiding physically. Like, And yet God pursues them. And the, the change starts when they come out of hiding. And yet our culture, rather than just allowing shame to lead us to Jesus has thrown shame out the window. So now we're walking around without fig leaves going, screw it. I can do whatever I want. I don't right. need stronger than that. I can be naked and do whatever I want rather Who said than naked is wrong. Right. Yes. Right. Rather than let me just, let me put clothes on and, and let yes. me, yes. let me address yes. why I want to be naked. <laughs> yeah. And many, many even writers I've read, even writers who again, have been in the Christian camp before, even laud Eve. They say, man, Eve was, Eve was so strong that she was willing to take the, to eat of the fruit. And it's antithesis to what you read in the word of God. And so shame is crippling. Here's the thing is, so I talk about guilt and shame, right? So guilt and shame are hand in hand, right? So most of us understand our guilt is forgiven in Christ. Even shame, we understand it intellectually. Like we know there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And so in a sense, we know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Like those are sort of basic tenets of the faith. And yet 
we live with this shame that God has not imposed on us. And I think it's because we're continuing in certain sense. So, and so I can tell you personal testimony that since I've written this book, my sense of shame is in, especially in this area has been freed. Why? Mm. Because there's something that is immensely freeing when you no longer walk in the dark and step into the light. Why is it so shameful when a pastor's life implodes? Because they've been living in hiding. Sure. It is shameful. Why? Come to reconcile, come to your knees before you implode. And yeah, there may be a temporary embarrassment and shame, shame over, like I remember the first few people who read my book, I couldn't breathe until they told me what they thought because I thought, what are they going to think of me? Yeah. And now it's funny, my mom, I would, you know, we talked about whether she was going to read the book or not. And for a while she was joking, my mom's 82 and she's, you know, I mean, she, in their era, their generation is different than ours. And I was like, mom, maybe you can skip this one. Right. And, and, and I finally, I could tell like she was bothered that she hadn't read it. Like there's a point where it's like, okay, it was all cute that she wasn't reading it, but I did an interview on the radio. She listened to the interview and she said some things after that made me realize like maybe she felt left out that she hadn't let it show. So I went to visit her last week and I left the book in my room. I didn't give it to her, but I left it there. And I figured she'll see it within a couple of days. And sure enough, she found it yesterday and she started reading it. And and, and also there's a point where you're like, please, God, don't let her hate it. But then the minute you're known, she, she's three chapters in it and loving it. Although I'm nervous, what will she do when she gets to chapter nine, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh. But then she'll get to the chapter 15. They're all really short chapters, by the way. Don't be scared if you hear that. But, but you see, there's something freeing then when you know that someone has heard your story and you sort of realize like, that's, that's better. I'd rather be known. They still love me. They still love me. Yes. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking about what you were saying that I've often said, you know, people will say, well, I don't want to tell the truth because the truth hurts. Well, it's, it's actually the sin that hurts. It's not the truth that hurts. The truth sets you free. Truly. We know that from scripture. But it's the sin that hurts. And at the moment that, that the truth comes out about it, there, there will be some pain. There will be some consequences, but, it, but it is not the actual telling of the truth that is what is hurting you. It is the sin that caused that. And so when that exposure comes, when that moment of, of honesty comes with it will be some pain because of what, you know, the, the, the behavior was or the ramifications yeah. of it. So, you know, but if, if, if the sin wasn't being engaged in, you would never have yeah. that moment of pain. Well, and I think honestly, and, and part of my story, honestly, the gift for me was was finding like I think the church, I, if I may like suggest, and I, and again, I, I love the local church, but I think there are some things that the local church has been bad at, and one is creating safe spaces for people. Sure. Yeah. And, and so for me, like honestly, I don't think I would have ever unpacked my story. By the way. The truth hurts, but living in shame hurts more. Yes, for sure. It's a burden. It is a it's a bear on your back. It, there's a constant fear. What if someone finds out? What if this gets out of control? What if, what if God doesn't love me because I'm doing this? What if the things that are happening in my life that are bad are because I'm doing? You know, there's so much lies that go through your head yeah. when you're stuck in this fog of shame and and a, per, a permission to sin more because you almost want to feel bad because if you're doing something bad, like that, if you feel better about how bad you feel, you see, there's like a justified reason of why you feel bad. I, I think you know, finding a safe space is for people to understand that you're not the only one, which I know you know intellectually, but you kind of think other people who struggle with lust are sitting in some, you know, celebrate recovery room in the basement. They're creeps. They're, you know, we have this mental stereotype of what we think that person should be. And in some ways, 
a 50-year-old virgin who's a doctor who leads Bible studies might not be that picture person that you would think, oh, wow, she struggles too. I just think it breaks down walls. Well, it also goes to show that there is no there is no stereotype for who struggles. I mean, you know, it is all of us in some way. It is everyone. And what has been particularly helpful to you? You mentioned counseling, but as in your own life, as you've navigated your struggle with sex and desire and all of those things, what, what's been some, just some practical things that have been really helpful for you? I think, honestly, I think the reason I didn't cross lines that others who have the same DNA as I do, same patterns of sin that I do have crossed is because of the spiritual practices that have been and continue to be, even in my darkest seasons of leaving, you know, that church, again, because of my own OCD-like upbringing and, and sort of Lebanese, you know, you do what you do, but really it has been probably my saving thing. And so reading the Bible daily, even seasons where I didn't get much out of it, where I was even angry at God, wrestling with God, but showing up daily. I honestly think that those are the little things that are big things. As in the last, I think even six months to a year with my own team, as I've told my story more openly, our prayer meetings, you know, I have been, you know, we meet and pray as a team regularly. The people in my life, the friendships in my life, I think even just that, even if you're not talking about that, the fact that you know that if you don't go to church on Sunday, well, my nephew's going to pull up the driveway and say, why aren't you coming? So, so the habits of the Christian life, I think if you can stay there, I think we need to learn from other cultures that way. That is not American. American is independent. You leave home when you're 18. You don't, answer to anybody. And so, and sometimes it's annoying to have that in my life, but that honestly, when you say what has saved me, it's that it's the Mm -hmm. fact that there are people who know where I am. I can't be in a, you know, in a city, even when I travel internationally, I'm accounted for almost every minute of the day. Yeah, that's so good. Well, I have loved having you on. And I think this is a really important book for people to get Don't tell anyone you're reading this, A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. There is a lot in there and there is a lot of help. I just highly recommend it. It's very good. I have one last question. I ask it of every single guest. Obviously, this is called the Jesus Over Everything show. What is the last thing you would say about Jesus if you could only say one more thing? He's worth it all. Mm. Hands down. Jesus is worth it all. There's nothing you will ever give up or, uh, or do in your life that isn't worth everything for having him. Really, it's all boiled down to Jesus in my life. It has all boiled down to Jesus. Yeah, so good. And that's from someone who has gone through a season of deconstruction and come back to what she actually probably reconstructed in your life, what, has, what is true and what has always been true. And that's so good, the, the saving power of Jesus Christ. And so I'm so grateful for what you're offering in the world. And thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Jesus Over Everything with Lisa Whittle. Follow us on Instagram. Subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts. Hey, would you do something for me? If you love this show, would you head to your favorite place to listen and leave me a great rating and review for the podcast? It helps so much to expose this show to more people and in turn, share the good news of Jesus. Jesus.